the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Josh Pick is the Chief Investment Advisor with Aptus Wealth Management, a state-registered investment advisory firm. This program is sponsored by Aptus Wealth Management. Exposure to ideas and financial vehicles discussed should not be considered investment advice or recommendation to buy or sell financial vehicles. This information should not be considered tax or legal advice. Individuals should consult with professionals to see if any ideas expressed would fit their specific situation. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. Securities can fluctuate and when redeemed may be more or less than when originally invested. Welcome to the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Show with Josh Pick. Every week, Josh will teach you ways to help manage, risk, and protect your retirement income in the new economy. The primary focus at Aptus Wealth is to provide flexible planning strategies that can efficiently achieve your long-term retirement goals. Hi, everybody. Before we get into the show, I just want to give you a gentle reminder if you're just joining us. First of all, thank you. And thank you to our regular listeners. We know you have a lot of choices out there. So we appreciate that you're spending time with us today. You can hear Josh every Monday at 6 with Bruce Hooley on Money Mondays on 98.9 The Answer. And uh, if you miss that, you can always catch the podcast on Josh's website called aptuswealth.com. Josh, let's get started. Let's talk about fiduciaries. And do people often feel like they're they're giving up control and independence when they decide to work with a trusted fiduciary advisor like you? Or what is the, what are some of the reasons that people don't pick a financial advisor? Well, Diane, there's certainly a lot of camps out there. You know, people who are do-it-yourselfers, people who can't wait to find somebody to help them, and then kind of everybody in the middle. Um, and, and I think when it comes to the do-it-yourselfers, well, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, those uh, meaning that, you know, you can do your own research, you can be fiscally responsible, you can, this could even be your wheelhouse where you just say, this makes a lot of sense to me and I'm going to do it myself. Those folks certainly feel like they're giving up some control. So first and foremost, uh, a relationship with a fiduciary, financial advisor, et cetera, should be a partnership, not a, I take over everything and you never have to worry about anything in your financial life ever again. The purpose, in my opinion, of a fiduciary is to provide you with the information to make logical decisions and to educate yourself or empower you to know where you stand fiscally. So it's a partnership. It's not a one or the other, number one. Number two, even if you are a do-it-yourselfer and you're doing a great job, all of us have a certain amount of runway, meaning at some point, you know, none of us get out of here alive, Diane. At some point, we're going to have to pass these funds onto somebody else or uh, you know as we get older it's harder to keep up sometimes and at some point the better stewards of our money may not be ourselves they may be a financial advisor or somebody that you trust a fiduciary so I think it's important to note that through that partnership you are also establishing a continuation plan in the event that at some point you can no longer do it yourself so what if you were to pass away and, you know, let's say, you know, husband and wife, and, and now it's your wife's obligation to, to be the steward of your money, make sure it lasts for her. Do you want to leave that decision? Let's say in this scenario, your wife 
doesn't, it's not her thing. She does not look at the finances. You handle the finances. You always have. And now you didn't want to have a relationship with any fiduciary. You pass away or become incapacitated in some capacity. And, and that now that decision is left to your wife. Who is better to make the decision of who you would be better to work with? You or the person who isn't good at making these types of decisions? So I think it's important, regardless of your age, regardless of your level of of uh, aptitude or wanting to do it, do everything yourself or whether you feel like you're giving up control to at least begin the investigation of who can I trust and who do I believe will do a good job should I not be able to do it moving forward. And then obviously uh, one of the big arguments uh, to do it yourself is, is the, the element of cost. So that would be where I always say go down the fiduciary path, all costs are transparent Make sure that the value exceeds the cost. If the value does not exceed the cost, then don't use the fiduciary. But at least establish that rapport and that relationship should you no longer be around, that other person has a place to go that you've already vetted. Josh, do you think that people think it's so much more expensive than it actually is to have a financial advisor? Many times, yeah. If you look at, I think the stories that we hear of financial advisors typically are not ones of fiduciaries, number one. Typically, they're a broker, and the story goes like this. Every time I hear from my financial advisor, it's because they're trying to sell me something, and I don't know what they make, but I know it's a lot, and they probably make more than I do, quite frankly. And that's not necessarily untrue, Diane. Uh, There are many, many brokers that will only call you when they have an opportunity to sell you something new. And many times, with many products, that advisor makes an upfront commission, and that is all they make until that product is moved to another product. This can occur with um, individual stockbrokers, it can occur with A-share mutual funds, it can occur with annuities, etc. So many times I think that argument is accurate. Fiduciaries, on the other hand, have to be utterly and completely transparent in every fee that they charge. So it's easy to do the analysis of how much am I paying for this service and how do both sides win? And what I mean by that, Diane, is if I sell you a product as a broker, whether that investment goes up or down is irrelevant to me. Uh, You put $100,000 in, I made a 5% commission, I made $5,000 up front. If it goes down to $50,000, it does not change my commission. On the fiduciary side of things, you are paying a percentage of the money that is managed. So there is no gigantic upfront commission. It is a fee for advice. So let's take that same scenario and say that it's a $100,000 account. And let's say that that uh, particular fiduciary charges 1%. They're making $100,000, but that's $100,000 divided by 12 per month over time. If that $100,000 grows to $110,000, then in turn, that fiduciary's fee goes up by 10%. So if you want to see where the vested interest is and what happens to your money, make sure you enter into a relationship where the way that the person advising you on your money makes money is if you make money. So you want to be aligned with the person that you're working with to make sure that we both win in this scenario. Um, So many times I agree with that. I'm paying too much for what I'm getting, but I very, very, very rarely hear that on the fiduciary side of the table. 
Okay. So on the fiduciary side, they're making money when you make money. Correct. And the only way that they make more money is by you making more money. And this is the, uh, we've covered this many times, but this is the relationship that I operate under. So I am on the same side of the table as a client. The last thing I want to do is not make you money. And even worse than that, I certainly don't want to see you lose money because if your account goes down by 30%, I make 30% less as well. So we're both on the same team here, trying to move in a similar direction. Taxes eating into your investments lowers your account balance, which in turn lowers the amount that a fiduciary makes. So the last thing I want to have happen is a tax inefficient strategy as well. So we're all on the same page. To learn strategies to manage risk, to schedule your own personalized planning session with Josh, the number to call is 614-364-7300. 614-364-7300. So Josh, we know how much to pull out of our retirement accounts is very important when it comes to taxes, but let's talk about how important it is and go over this because uh, I feel we can't repeat it enough. How important it is is when we withdraw as well. Well, when can be arguably just as important as uh, how much. And I think there's two ways to look at this, Diane. Number one, um, let's cover what's happening a lot right now due to COVID, the economy, et cetera. Pulling out money from a retirement account early to cover short-term costs prior to retirement can be a very detrimental thing. And here's why. The value of your investment is going to be determined by time, time in the market. Our biggest asset is time. We hear that all the time. But what does that even mean? Well, there's something called the Rule 72. And I know we've talked about this a lot, but let's cover it one more time. The Rule of 72 states that if you take the number 72 and you divide the interest rate, the the 72 by the interest rate, it tells you how long it takes for your money to double. Now, I tell you that because let's just assume that you average a 7.2% rate of return, which wouldn't be completely unreasonable. I know there's many people out there on many different radio shows that will use numbers like, you know, it's reasonable to assume that as long as you pay off all your debt and you invest for the long term, you're going to get 12% rate of returns. That simply is not justified. You would have to be very uh, selective in cherry-picking the exact time frame that would equate to a 12% average annual rate of return. But if you look over, for instance, the last 20 years, Over the last 20 years, the market has returned less than six. So, uh, you know, these 12% rate of returns are kind of ridiculous. Now, that said, if you allocate your money appropriately, you manage risk appropriately, getting a 7.2% rate of return is not um, something out of the realm of possibility. So let's assume that we get a 7.2% rate of return on a retirement assets. You take 72 divided by 7.2 gives us a 10, uh, 10, uh, the number 10. That means that our money will double every 10 years. Now, why is that important? Well, let's assume that we're 40 years old. We plan on retiring when we're 60 years old or we're 45 and we're planning on retiring 65. That's two time periods of 10, 20 years. But we pull out money today and we go, well, you know, I kind of needed the money. So I pulled $10,000 out. You're not really pulling out $10,000. You're pulling out $10,000 in today's terms. But if we double that twice, which is the value that it'll be when you're 65 or 60 years old in these examples, 20 years from now, at 7.2% rate of return, that 10 grows to 20, goes to 40. Imagine if we were talking about a 30-year rate of return. It grows to 80. Imagine if we were talking about 40. It's 160000 So the dollars that we pull out for a short-term emergency and why it's so important to have other assets for emergencies rather than retirement accounts is just that. That can be very detrimental to the long-term picture. 
The other side of the equation, Diane, is how do I pull money out while I'm retired? Do I just arbitrarily pull it out from wherever? Well, we've heard the term probably dollar cost averaging. When we're depositing money into our accounts, we can actually benefit from the volatility of the stock market through dollar cost averaging. Well, when we pull money out of, out of our accounts somewhat arbitrarily when we're retired, I equate that to dollar cost ravaging. It can really have a detrimental effect. And the reason I have a detrimental effect, and that's not to say it can't have a beneficial effect, but you're basing everything on happenstance. You don't know if you're making good decisions. You're just crossing your fingers and hoping. And the last thing you want to do is hope that the order in which the returns occur, that sequence of returns over the next 20 years on your withdrawals is good, is not a plan. I'm just going to cross my fingers and hope everything goes in my direction and I, uh, I pick the right days to pull that money out. What you need to do is develop a plan that is rules-based that ladders the risk out. So I have my long-term investments in one bucket, I have my mid-term investments in another bucket, and I have my income-generating investments in another to make sure that you do not let the sequence of return risk, and sequence of returns means the order in which those returns occur, which we know that if the market averages seven, it's certainly not doing that at 7% per year. Some years it'll be 20, some years it'll be negative 10. That can have a detrimental impact on your money lasting for the rest of your life. So you need to have a plan. So to answer your question, Diane, is it important? It's critically important, not just how much, but when. To learn strategies to manage risk, to schedule your own personalized planning session, because Josh can do this for you, so you don't have to keep and keep track of the sequence of withdrawals or events, give Josh's office a call. The number is 614-364-7300. That's 614-364-7300. And just to let you know, you can hear Josh every Monday at 6 p.m. with Bruce Hooley on 98.9 The Answer for Money Mondays. If you miss Josh's visit with Bruce, you can listen to the podcast at aptuswell.com. We'll be back after the break. We'll be back with more at the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Show with Josh Pick at 98.9 The Answer. To create a successful retirement plan in today's economy, it takes a customized, solutions-based approach. At Aptus Wealth Management, founder Josh Pick calls it the Aptus Blueprint, and it's focused on managing risk instead of chasing returns. If you're working with another advisor or simply want a second opinion, put his team to work for you. To schedule a complimentary consultation to learn more about the Aptus Blueprint process, contact Josh at 614-364-7300 or visit aptuswealth.com. There is no cost or obligation, but space is limited. To start your plan, call 614-364-7300. 7300 or visit aptuswealth.com. Thanks for listening to the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Radio Show with Josh Pick. To schedule your complimentary customized planning session, give Josh a call at 614-364-7300. That's 614-364-7300. Welcome back to the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Show with Josh Pick. I'm Diane Brennan. Josh, 2020 has been quite a... uh, Well, we hope it's a forgettable year, to say the least. But what are some of the positives that people can take uh, financially from from this year moving forward? First, I I genuinely hope that this year was enough of a push of the reset button to get us all back on track. And what I mean by that is I think oftentimes when everything is good, we can't see anything happening bad. And and just in general in our investing lives, people are oftentimes somewhat short-sighted in the upside, meaning that they'll say, you know, I'm a long-term investor, but 
you know, three weeks from now, I didn't get a great rate of return, so I'm ready to pull the money out. Well, that isn't a long-term investor. We get short-sighted on the up, but we also get short-sighted in remembering the down. And, you know, that means look back at 2008, 2009. It wasn't that long ago, uh, you know, 11 years ago, we were talking about some pretty awful things and the importance of having an emergency fund, the importance of uh, the elimination of debt, the importance of making sure we live within our means and we have realistic expectations uh, as to what rates of return in the stock market will be. Well, in 11 short years, uh, we have forgotten some of those things. And I think for some people, uh, they got caught with their pants down uh, in the way of not having enough money uh, in cash reserves to handle things like losing their job, et cetera. And, and I'm certainly not trying to kick people while they're down, but I hope that that was a, a an as unpainful a lesson as, pros, as possible to learn. But I hope that people are using this opportunity and this respite in the market uh, to start push, putting back some emergency funds. So that's one good thing is I think anytime we have kind of a reset of the system, it makes us reevaluate what's really important and makes us reevaluate some things that we started to ignore. So hopefully everybody is trying to build that safety net as quick as possible. And also I think uh, many of us uh, took a lot of risks in our careers and maybe through this we found out that not all industries are necessarily created equal when there's some financial turmoil and some people have pivoted and readjusted their lives that way. But what are some good things that we can do that are more immediate uh, and more tangible this year on our tax return, for example? Well, one, if you did make it through COVID up to this point and you are doing well and you're looking for ways to reduce your tax liability and you're also looking to give back to those who have not done as well as you have, um, you can make donations to charitable causes before the end of the year. And that deduction in 2020, even if you don't itemize on your taxes, which is a big change, is tax deductible. Under the CARES Act, which was part of this Pandemic Relief Program uh, Act, donations made in 2020 are completely deductible. So typically you can only deduct these things when you itemize on your taxes. And because we had these tax changes back in 2017, I believe is when the, the, uh, the tax code was amended, uh, we were not allowed to take these charitable contribution deductions unless we exceeded our standard deduction. And for most, that standard deduction was made so high, the ability to, to take tax deductions has kind of gone away. But now you can take an above the line deduction of up to 300 bucks if you're uh, to your adjusted gross income and above the line means it's literally just write $300 off on your tax return, whether you itemize or not. Now, a couple of caveats there, it's for cash contributions. So if you're one of the fortunate people that can make a, uh, a donation to help uh, local businesses or local folks, particularly around the holidays, uh, stroke a check for 300 bucks to a charitable entity, and you get to write it off on your taxes regardless of whether or not you itemize. Diane, one thing that I have heard on that that I'm not sure to the answer, uh, the answer to, uh, which I'm sure somebody will have a question about, is if, if this is a husband and wife scenario, can we do 600 and write it off? The IRS has not really been clear on that yet. So uh, 300 for sure, 600 maybe. So th there's something you can do immediately and hopefully feel good around the holidays and uh, help somebody in need. So speaking of taxes, you have people in your office, or you can refer them out. You work together with accountants uh, in the area to help people strategize. You know, one thing that's overlooked in this industry is taxes. Um, you know, financial investment people uh, worry about how do we get the greatest rate of return. 
But ultimately, when you say, how can I reduce my tax position, that conversation usually says, well, go talk to your, go talk to your tax person. Then you go talk to your tax person and you say, how can I invest in a tax-favorable way to reduce my uh, tax position but increase my return? And that person usually says, I don't do investments, and you're left holding the bag trying to figure out what to do. Um, so I think it's important that while we do not do taxes directly in the office anymore, uh, we do have, because uh, we did for a long time, we do have a lot of strong relationships ranging from I need a very simple preparation of taxes done as inexpensively as possible to I need a tax attorney to solve some problems. And we have everybody in the middle. And I think that's critical that we have that good relationship because we can have uh, thorough, in-depth, personalized conversations with how do we improve this particular client situation, and we're all speaking the same language, and we can actually move the needle, which is a, a very missing link in today's financial planning world. So I think it's, it's incredibly critical, and I'm glad that we're in that position. And to continue to talk about the positives that have come out of 2020, we've all realized our, we're not saving enough, and a lot of us realize that. What do you advise if someone has a bit of debt? Should they be saving for retirement, say, putting in their emergency fund, or paying the debt down, or a combination of all three? Well, I think it'll be a, it should be a combination of all three. And the reason I say that is, you know, a, a lot of um, you know celebrity type talk shows hosts out there will say, you know, step number one, pay off all your debt. The unfortunate reality about that is, unless you're incredibly disciplined and you never take on debt again, and you're willing to live well below your means, that just doesn't work. Uh, you know, it's, it's an ideal world. Um, plus, you know, having debt on your house isn't necessarily the worst thing to have. Now, where I do agree with a lot of those people is having a 20% credit card debt uh, is also incredibly foolish. So I think the answer is somewhere in the middle. I think you should be incredibly disciplined with your credit situation, particularly credit cards, but I think good debt, like uh, having a 3% 30-year fixed loan on your house where you plan on living for a really long period of time is great. Having that asset and that resource uh, is helpful. But then don't uh, completely forget about saving. Uh, make sure you're saving towards retirement because remember, we talked earlier, time is your biggest asset. So if you say, I'm going to pay this off first before I start saving and you wait 20 years, you might have to save four times the amount to achieve the same result. And also, the closer and closer you get to retirement, the more conservative you have to be with your investments. So your rate of return lowers. So you have two forces working against you. I have to save a lot more at a lower rate of return. So do both. Um, but it's individualized, clearly. I want to put that disclaimer out there. Everybody's got a different situation. Um, everybody's got different interest rates that apply to their debt situation. It needs to be investigated, but that's you know, part of the planning process, of course. For anyone who has questions, Josh's number is 614-364-7300, 614-364-7300. The number again is 614-364-7300. And you can hear Josh every Monday at 6 with Bruce Hooley on 98.9 The Answer for Money Mondays. Josh, what are the biggest pros and cons uh, to working part-time after making the decision to retire? Let's talk about the pros. Obviously, working part-time allows you to make some money, which reduces the amount of income that you have to withdraw from your investments, which allows your investments to grow more, less strain on your investments. Obviously, any income that you're pulling into the household beyond your guaranteed, say, Social Security or your investment income is helpful. So that's the pros. 
There are quite a few cons, though, that can potentially surface. This isn't going to apply to everybody, but there can be a, a lot of cons. For example, if you're working part-time, I'm going to assume that you're not making as much money as you were working your full-time job, which means the amount of money that you're contributing to savings is probably significantly reduced. Your ability to pay off any debt, if that applies to you, is obviously significantly reduced. And depending upon how many years you've paid into Social Security, assuming you're not collecting Social Security yet while you're working part-time, can reduce the amount that your Social Security even is. Because Social Security is an average of your highest 35 years. Well, if you've only put in 20 years and now you're working at a lot less income, it can have an adverse effect on your Social Security income down the line. Which brings me to my next point. Let's say you retire at age 62 and you decide to collect Social Security while you work part-time. There are income thresholds on Social Security. And by that I mean, if you make too much money in that part-time job, it can actually reduce your Social Security benefit. And for the ease of, of the conversation, let's say that for every uh, $2 you make over approximately $19,000, they reduce your Social Security by $1. So. Let's say, for example, you're making $40,000 a year and your Social Security is only 10000 bucks. Well, you made 20000 roughly over the threshold. That reduces your Social Security income by $10,000. Essentially, your Social Security got reduced down to nothing. Now, the good news, Diane, is that you don't lose that Social Security income forever. When you actually drop below the threshold, then your Social Security income will go up like you never collected. But it can put a certainly a cash strain on people who didn't see that coming. Here I retire, I go part-time, I know if I had my Social Security with my part-time income, I can make it, and then didn't see it coming. A couple years later, Social Security sends you a love letter and says, the last year that you filed your taxes, you made too much money, and your Social Security is going to be reduced over the next 12 months. It's a terrible thing to uh, not have forecasted moving forward. And also note, Diane, that a lot of us, uh, over a third are going to be forced into retirement for reasons beyond our control, which is why planning is so important. Uh, a third of us are going to be thrown into retirement. Actually, I've heard numbers as high as 40% due to our own health or taking care of someone else's health. If you throw in the possibility of getting laid off, which I'm sure COVID hasn't helped anything in that regard, the number climbs. So this is going to face a lot of people. We have to be prepared for it. Uh, you know, in an ideal world, Postponing your Social Security as long as possible to receive the most out of Social Security that we can, working as long as possible and saving as much as we can, paying off our debt, is the ideal scenario. But we might not have the option to do that. We might not want to, of course, but we also might not have the option. So for those of you, and we've had this conversation before, we said, what if uh, I, I just believe that everything's going to work out? I'm not one of those people that, you know, doomsday preparing for anything. I don't need to save. I'll cross that bridge when I get there and I'll just work for the rest of my life, you might not have the option and you don't want to be thrust into that position um, by no decision of your own, but by some, some other force or factor that's going to determine it. So you have to put in at least a little bit of planning to, to cover all of these things. If you have questions, if you'd like to see how the Aptus Blueprint process can work for you, the number to call is 614-364-7300. 614-364-7300.
1-800-273-0000. And just want to give you a reminder, you can hear Josh every Monday at 6 with Bruce Hooley for Money Mondays on 98.9 The Answer. As well, Josh hosts free webinars about every two weeks for people to learn about some of the key concepts of retirement planning. Some examples, when should I take my Social Security, like what we've just been talking about. It's no cost or obligation. More of the Aptus Retirement Blueprint show when we come back. We'll be back with more at the Aptus Retirement Blueprint show with Josh Pick at 98.9 The Answer. Thanks for listening to the Aptus Retirement Blueprint radio show with Josh Pick. To schedule your complimentary customized planning session, give Josh a call at 614-364-7300. That's 614-364-7300. Welcome back to the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Show with Josh Pick. Josh, with CD and savings rates so low, uh, what are some options out there for people to grow their nest egg outside of the volatile markets? Yeah, this is a huge concern, Diane, for for many. Matter of fact, you're you're seeing a lot of uh, statistics, statistics, excuse me, coming out of you know the Retirement Income Planning Institute, et cetera, all these different you know uh, think tank type institutes or the Academy of Smart People. And their biggest concern is, do, can our withdrawal rate, you know, we've had, we have the rule, the 4% rule, you know, as long as we don't exceed 4% of what we start with and we allocate it accordingly, we can have income that lasts the rest of our life. But a lot of that is predicated on the safety and security of guaranteed rate investments. And as interest rates are so abysmally low, one of the concerns is, will 4% still hold? You're talking about CD rates of less than 1%. You're talking about a 10-year treasury of less than 1%. You're talking about really every guaranteed vehicle out there with one exception being so, so low that how do I generate any income off of safe money? And we say that while coupling it with the fact that our government seems to be very comfortable and just ad hoc printing as much money as possible to pay off debts, uh, you know, economic relief acts, uh, just rather than make difficult decisions, swallowing very difficult medicine, we will just print our way out of this situation, which has worked up to this point, other than we do have a deficit and we're printing money to pay off that deficit. And what could that in turn create? What could it in turn create inflation? Because our dollars are worth less if there's more of them uh, that aren't substantiated by anything like gold, et cetera. So my concern is this, how do we achieve guaranteed income rates of return when inflation could be a problem and interest rates are at all time lows? And the only answer to that is annuities. And the reason, and I'm, you know, a lot of people uh, that are listening right now are going to go, annuities, I heard that's a bad word. Well, remember that ignorance many times uh, kind of spreads around, meaning that uh, there are four different types of annuities. I might be talking about one. One type of annuity is not very good, let's say, and we just kind of include everybody into the pile. That would be like saying, uh, I don't like XYZ brand of cars, so I hate cars clearly not a logical deduction. So let's talk about annuities and why they have value and what they are in general. Number one, annuities almost always on a guaranteed basis provide a higher rate of return than the CDs at the bank. On top of that, if you're not using IRA dollars, they get tax deferral just like your IRAs do on non-qualified dollars. So now we're talking about tax deferred rate of return versus taxable which the longer you leave it alone, the value of that tax-deferred rate of return is more advantageous, meaning that uh, 3% tax-deferred can be as good as 3.5% taxable depending upon your tax rate. Now, if we can get 
3% tax deferred versus 1% taxable, there's no instance where that doesn't make more sense. On top of that, even deferred annuities almost always allow for liquidity during your deferral period. So typically, if you have a CD, you may be allowed to get interest out of that CD, but for the most part, you tie that money up for the period of time that you agreed to. Annuities, on the other hand, while you have rules to play by, much like a CD, you do in fact have some liquidity provisions. On top of that, there are many annuities that will allow you to tie some of the rate of return to the market while not accepting any of the downside risk of the market. Meaning if the market does well, you win, not 100% win, but you win. If the market does poorly, you don't lose. Now, does that mean that you know you get your cake and you eat it too? No, not necessarily. Um, you're definitely giving something up for that, but when you compare it to the abysmal interest rates of today, it is a very logical conclusion. So um, I think the takeaway here is be open to other options in times where interest rates and risk-free rates of return are essentially non-existent, or you will drastically lower your ability to either limit volatility, because you don't want to put all your money in the stock market, or you will reduce your ability to combat inflation, which is the silent killer of any retirement portfolio. What, so when interest rates are low, is that when people start looking at like things like owning gold and all the ads come out, like buy gold and all of that kind of stuff? What, what do you think well, about think, those different what, – what do you call them, alternative investing options, or, or what's the name? Yeah, I think alternative investing is kind of one of those big lumps that we throw everything to. Alternative could be anything from you know buying cell towers to gold. But gold in general is what we call a hard asset. Hard assets include things like gold, silver, platinum, could be cotton, uh, wheat, et cetera. These are all the hard assets that you can actually buy. It's real stuff. And I, while I think that those commodities, if you will, always have a place in every investment portfolio to some degree, in times of uncertainty, people really hop on that bandwagon. You know, 2008, 2009, uh, gold, you know, everybody wanted gold. Uh, and then it plummeted, and it really hasn't done much until as of late. Well, we always want what we need when it's too, almost too late sometimes. You know, I found out I have cancer. I should really go get some life insurance. Well, too late. Well, the same thing. When gold runs up, people want to buy a lot of it. But while it's down, nobody want to look at it. So I, I don't think that gold is going to be your income-generating superhero. But I think that there's a place and time for gold. Uh, but tread lightly. Certainly don't move all your money to gold. To learn strategies to manage risk, to schedule your own personalized planning session, give Josh's office a call at 614-364-7300. That's 614-364-7300. You can hear Josh every Monday at 6 p.m. with Bruce Hooley on 98.9 The Answer for Money Mondays. Josh, what are some effective ways for people to stretch their retirement income by by downsizing? I, I know that with the COVID, everybody's thinking about getting a bigger place because you spend a lot more time with your family uh, <laughs> when when we're on lockdown and they're realizing they might not sure. have enough space. But for retirement purposes, downsizing, good idea. What are your thoughts on that? Well, this is the part of the show, Diane, where our, our, our listeners get a treat of argument. Because uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, Diane, besides being a broadcasting juggernaut, is also uh, very avid in the real estate world. So this will be a good conversation between you and I. Um, I think you know downsizing on the surface is a brilliant move. And why is it brilliant? Well, obviously, if you buy a less expensive place, your mortgage payments are less. Well, if your place is less expensive 
then you have lower property taxes, which many people don't include when they look at their house. They say, oh, my house is paid off, but I'm still paying, you know, $500 a month in property taxes. Well, if you move to a less expensive place or in, a, in an area with lef- less expensive property taxes, that's a, a, a smaller hole in the bottom of the bucket. So it, that has huge value. If you have a smaller place, heating and cooling, uh, a place that's 1,500 square feet is a lot less expensive than 3,000 square feet. You know, homeowner's insurance, you're insuring less. Maybe you're moving to an area where homeowner insurance is, you're closer to the fire department. All these things reduce your costs. If you buy a brand new house, it's very common. I'm going to move into a newer home, so I have less maintenance costs. I have less expensive uh, appliances. Uh, you know, my, my HVAC unit on my house is about to go. This is a way for me to kind of skip that, move into a place that maybe I was very fortunate. I had a big house and had two HVAC units, and now I'm moving to one. All these things drastically reduce your outlay. So on the surface, Diane, I think it's brilliant. The unfortunate reality is this is what I see time and time again. I've been living in this house, the same house, for 25 years. When I bought the house, it was $150,000. Now it's worth $350,000, but I'm starting to get into an arena where I have a lot of stuff I need to do to fix it up. It's bigger than we need. I wish it was set up a little bit differently. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go buy a new house. It's brand new, so I'm not going to have any problems with anything. For the next, you know, I'm 70 years old, probably, you know, till I die, I'm not going to have any issues. And I'm going to spend the same $350,000. Well, Diane, you know this better than anybody. If you bought your house for $150,000, even though you can sell it for $350,000, your appraised value on the auditor's website and what you're paying taxes on is almost never $350,000. So inherently, you're probably going to end up paying more in real estate taxes. And in Columbus in particular, there are very few areas where you can run from high property taxes anymore unless you get pretty far away from the city, which as long as you're comfortable with that, which this urb, you know, this suburban sprawl is becoming very, very common. I live in the country myself, so I understand. Unless you're doing that, don't necessarily count on your real estate taxes going down. On top of that, one thing that I always caution people on, and this is not to say that downsizing doesn't make sense because it certainly does. It makes things more manageable is when you buy a brand new house or you move into a new house, oftentimes we discount. I certainly did. I just moved into a new house, Diane, not too long ago. I got to put blinds on the house. I forgot it doesn't have a back patio because it's brand new. I got to put a back patio on the house if I want such a thing. Oh, well, I forgot there's no shelving in the garage. I forgot there's no, and you just keep on adding these things up. Oftentimes, you can spend a lot more money moving and downsizing than if you just would have stayed put. So again, not to say it doesn't make sense. I think it makes a tremendous amount of sense. I moved my mother into a smaller house that was brand new, so I'm not discounting the ideology behind it and whether it can make sense or not. But just make sure you really write down everything rather than just using the term downsizing as a justification for getting a brand new house that you really want. That's my my caution to you. And it's one thing for the financial cost, too, but really think of your lifestyle. I moved from the country and into the city more, and it's driving me bananas that they are picking up garbage at 6 o'clock in the morning on a Monday. That And I moved into a condo, so people are parking in front of my garage and blocking uh, me there to the point where I'm late to get to my appointments. So there's that aspect as well, quality of life. Sure. I guess make the decision rather than I think oftentimes we're emotional people. I certainly fall victim to this is you use terms and ideologies that you hear to justify 
just things you really, really want. And you say, well, it's going to make a lot of sense. Make sure you pragmatically and non-emotionally sit down and really go through the true cost and in what you just said, the true impact on your life, right? We, it sounded like a good idea. I'm going to move from the country, move to the city. Everything will be more convenient. It'll be closer. I'm downsizing. It'll be less expensive. And then uh, I kind of forgot about these other seven things. For example, I forgot when I moved to the country that while you said that they're picking up garbage all the time, I lived not, not in the country, but, you know, in a neighborhood. And I had to walk about 40 feet to the end of my driveway to drop my trash off. Well, now I live in the country. I got to load my trash cans in the back of my truck and drive them down to the end of a, a three, a third of a mile lane every <laughs> every Tuesday night to take the trash out. I I didn't really think too much about that. And you know, I don't want them picking up trash right in front of my house every Monday, but uh, I wish it was a little bit of a shorter jaunt to take out my trash. So, <laughs> you know, pragmatically look at this. Um, we're happy to sit down with you and help you through that that kind of logical process. And I, I'm not going to be, uh, you know, the, the fun police and tell you not to do it. I just want to make sure that you're well aware of all the costs associated with doing it and what is the pros, the cons, the benefits, and the negatives. The number is 614-364-7300. 614-364-7300. More of the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Show when we come back. We'll be back with more at the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Show with Josh Pick at 98.9 The Answer. To create a successful retirement plan in today's economy, it takes a customized, solutions-based approach. At Aptus Wealth Management, founder Josh Pick calls it the Aptus Blueprint, and it's focused on managing risk instead of chasing returns. If you're working with another advisor or simply want a second opinion, put his team to work for you. To schedule a complimentary consultation to learn more about the Aptus Blueprint process, contact Josh at 614-364-7300 or visit aptuswealth.com. There is no cost or obligation, but space is limited. To start your plan, call 614-364-7300. 7300 or visit aptuswealth.com. Thanks for listening to the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Radio Show with Josh Pick. To schedule your complimentary customized planning session, give Josh a call at 614-364-7300. Welcome back to the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Show with Josh Pick. I'm Diane Brennan. Josh, what is the ideal retirement age? Well, short answer, there is none. Uh, but I think the ideal retirement age is whatever age allows your retirement cash flow to be sufficiently high enough to last the rest of your life. Let me put that very simply. You know what you need to live on. Let's say that number is for easy math, $5,000 a month. I need $5,000 a month to retire. I know that my social security between my wife and I is going to be $3,000 a month, which gives us a shortfall of $2,000 a month. You would then out of that $2,000 a month subtract any pensions that you're aware of, et cetera. And then say, how much do I have in assets and how much income will that generate? And does it get me to $5,000 a month net of taxes? If the answer is no, then you're not ready to retire unless you reduce your lifestyle. So that, that answer could happen at 60. That answer could happen at 67. It could happen at 75. We call it financial independence rather than retirement. Your decision to retire should be up to you. Your financial independence, hopefully occurs prior to that decision, right? But the one thing that I would caution people in doing, and I've seen this happen many, many times, is the old kind of thought process when people had pensions and everybody had a pension and social security and then they really didn't need that much more in additional savings because their pension and social security was their safety net. It was their consistent income. It was predictable and reliable. And then on top of that, 
um, houses we usually bought, stayed in forever, and they were paid off. So a lot of the, the old the old kind of retirement way was my house is paid off. Uh, I have maybe a car payment if I didn't pay cash, and now I have these other two guaranteed income sources. I put in my 30 years or 40 years or whatever that number was, and I retired. And I walked away. So I start when I'm 20. I go till I'm 65, and I'm done. Well, I still hear that a lot. Uh, people will come into my office, and I say, why, why did you retire? Well, I'd worked there for 40 years, so I retired. But, okay, but you were making 90 grand a year. Your Social Security is 2500 bucks a month, and beyond that, you have $30,000 saved. Why did you retire? You're, I, I don't, while I was there for 45 years, I, I, I caution you to make the decision purely based upon the amount of years that you worked somewhere. It has to be based upon your financial ability and not just exclusively your age and duration of employment. So the answer is it can be different for everybody, Diane. To learn strategies to manage risk and to schedule your own personalized planning session, give Josh's office a call at 614-364-7300. 614-364-7300. You can hear Josh every Monday at 6 p.m. with Bruce Hooley on 98.9 The Answer. It's for Money Mondays. If you miss Josh's visit with Bruce, you can always listen to it at aptuswealth.com. So, Josh, most people live by the mantra, the earlier, the better, when it comes to planning for retirement. But what tips do you have for the crowd that lives by uh, the quote, better late than never? Here's some stats for you. In 2016, the average American between the age of 50 and 55 had retirement savings of only $11,000. So first thing is if you've lived by the mantra, better late than never, you're not alone. So it's not too late. Now, the longer that you have, the better. So while earlier is better, it's never too late to begin. So if you have 20 years plus remaining in retirement, or before retirement, excuse me, if you have 20 years plus, time is still on your side, and the effect of compounding and investing in the stock market can have a huge benefit for you still. If you're closer to retirement than that, well, you're going to have to, you know, it's going to be a little bit of tough medicine. You're going to have to save probably a little bit more than you planned on. And you might have to be a little bit more conservative in your vest- investing than you wanted to be. But note that every dollar you save can make a significant difference in your retirement. So what are some things that you can do? Well, one, if you work for an employer that has a 401k, and particularly if you work for an employer that has a 401k and a match, if you're not saving enough into your 401k to at least get the match, figure out a way to get there. That is a 100% rate of return from day one, regardless of what investment you put it in. I mean, let's really think about this. If I put a dollar in and my employer matches a dollar, even if I put it in the checking account, uh, the equivalent of a checking account version in the 401k, which would be called a money market in a 401k, but even if I do that and I assume zero risk, because I go, ah, the stock market scares me. I hear that oftentimes. The stock market terrifies me, so I don't do my 401k because I know that's in the stock market. There are other investments available inside of your 401k that are not stock market related. And if you put in a dollar and they match a dollar, you got a 100% rate of return with zero risk from day one. So certainly do that. Try and tick up, number two, try and tick up the amount that you're saving into your company-sponsored plan, your 401k. So remember, your 401k investments go in pre-tax, they go tax-deferred, and then you cover the tax bill when you withdraw the money. That first part, uh, the money I put in goes in pre-tax, means that for every dollar I save into my 401k, my paycheck will not go down by a dollar. 
it will go down by less than a dollar. So I will not feel the full brunt of that investment. So as much as you possibly can, tick that up. And the thresholds, by the way, if you say, man, I really want to get aggressive with this. I'm 52 years old. I know I'm, I'm getting close. I'm 55. I need to really hammer down. I need to push on the accelerator. Once you're over the age of 50, in a 401k, you can contribute an additional up to $6,500 per year into your 401k. The threshold is already nineteen five. So theoretically, if you're over the age of 50, you could put $26,000 a year into your 401k. Now add on top of that if your company has a match, and the amount of money you can save on an annual basis pre-tax is pretty high. Now I know that's a lofty goal for many. Just know that you have plenty of room, so there's no excuse for, I just can't save enough. There's a vehicle more than likely right there. Argument, my company doesn't have a 401k. What can I do and still get that tax benefit? You can do a traditional IRA. And regardless of your income, if your company does not have, the company you work for does not have a 401k, you get to write off the IRA contribution. If your company has a 401k and you make too much money, well, then there's some thresholds. But regardless of your income, if you don't have a company 401k plan or pension plan or some sort of retirement plan to contribute to, contribute to an IRA. The threshold's there, $6,000 before you're the age of 50. When you're over the age of 50, you can do a $7,000 contribution. So the excuse of, I don't know where to put it, um, get the tax deductibility of investing. Roth IRA might make more sense. That's the same thresholds as a traditional. But try and uptick your savings as much as you can. Words of caution. If you're new to this, one of the most powerful things you can do is automate your savings. Don't say, when I get this bonus, I'm going to end up saving. Every client I have who has made a very good income, but not you know a, a, a million dollars a year, that has a lot of money when they retire, has gotten there because they've been consistent, disciplined, and, and automated. So set this up so it automatically withdraws from your paycheck or automatically withdraws from your checking account every single month. It's also easier to tick up the amounts as time goes on by doing it that way. And number two, if you are new to this, don't take this as a time to say, you know, I've been watching CNBC and I'm pretty sure that I can pick some really good stocks. While it may work for you in the short run, it can oftentimes be a fool's game where you know, they say hogs get fat and pigs get slaughtered. People will buy stocks that sometimes in spite of ourselves, we succeed, and then we end up getting burned down the line. So stay away from individual stocks, at least in the beginning, or seek advice and buy into mutual funds, particularly something like an age-based fund where you don't have a lot of thinking to do and just automate, repeat, 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 try and increase as much as you can over time and chip away at it, and it'll make a gigantic difference. And then just to explain, it's... Uh less risk if you're investing in mutual funds rather than the stocks? Well, it's less risk in that there's diversification. Yes. So uh, think about Enron, for example. We all know the story of Enron. Uh, if you had Enron stock, you thought you were really rich before you were really poor because Enron went kind of belly up and their stock is worth nothing. If you had all your money in Enron, that would have been a huge problem. If you had had a mutual fund that had 100 different stocks and one of them was Enron, you only would have lost 1% of your investment that year, assuming that all the others didn't do anything up or down. So diversification certainly reduces your risk. Yes. And there are other ways to do that. Um, happy to talk about that uh, another time, but diversification is step one. And what about drips? So let's say I, I won't say it's my own mutual fund, but I would buy separate stocks, but I would buy the same amount each month with drips. Sure. And, and by drips, for those of you listening, what she's saying is um, I want to get again automated and that I continue to buy the same stock over and over again. So let's say that I, 
I decided I wanted to drip invest into Coca-Cola, Amazon, Costco, Berkshire Hathaway, and Costco. Yeah, I mean, pick, pick four companies. You can absolutely automate that. So every single month, regardless of the stock price, I'm going to buy, I'm going to invest 100 bucks a month, and it's going to be allocated 25 to each, and I'm going to buy as much as those stocks as I possibly can for $25. That is the same ideology as buying the mutual fund. The big difference here is if you're doing that and you're doing, let's go back to that $100 example. I say I want to invest $100. Well, one share of that stock might be more than $100. So I can't even do that. So now it's sitting in cash. And I do another 100 and it gets to 200 And I do another 100 And then all of a sudden I go, man, I'd, I'd really like to have this share, but the share is $3,300. Well, I'm not buying anything. And then when I finally can, I buy one share. Well, there goes my diversification. If you buy a mutual fund, you're buying a fractional ownership or an ETF for that matter, which is an exchange-traded fund. You're buying a fractional ownership in the totality of what they have in investments. You could theoretically buy uh, a, a portion in thousands of shares if you wanted to for $100. So it buys you diversification at a lower price point. Let's talk about people listening, trying to educate themselves, which we always encourage. Um, sure. But what are some of the things that people are hearing from national talk shows and all that kind of stuff that, that you don't necessarily agree with? Yeah, sure. I think, well, number one, on all media, um, ours obviously excluded, or at least I, I hope that ours is coming across as an educational medium rather than a sensational medium. And, and that's not to say that a lot of the other quote-unquote talk shows um, aren't trying to educate as well. But sometimes uh, in today's world, the more polarizing you are, the more popular you are. So I will get more listeners by saying, um, I would rather burn in hell than buy an annuity. Uh, that's polarizing, certainly raises eyebrows, uh, goes, oh, I, I like that. Then I can just cross annuities off the list and I don't have to learn about them. Uh, the reality is they have a place. If I said uh, anybody who buys a mutual fund as opposed to an exchange-traded fund is a moron, again, same concept. Does that mean that all mutual funds are bad and all ETFs are good? Of course not. So my hope for this show and my hope for people in general is that they get a good baseline understanding of everything, understand the pros and the cons of all investments that we discuss, and do a net-to-net -net comparison of what makes sense to them. All things have value and all things have downside. It's up to you to figure out how they fit into your life. And obviously, that's a difficult path to understand. And figuring out the secret sauce of the mix uh, can take a career to figure out. And that's why we're here. Uh, I want educated clients, but I also uh, want to help people in figuring out that mix that makes the most sense for them. If you'd like to see how the Aptis Blueprint process can work for you, the number is 614-364-7300, 614-364-7300. Catch Josh every Monday with Bruce Hooley for Money Mondays on 98.9 The Answer at 6 p.m. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. We'll talk to you next week. You've been listening to the Aptis Retirement Blueprint Radio Show with host Josh Pick. Josh helps guide his clients through retirement by managing risk instead of chasing returns. He calls it a blueprint, and you can get started at no cost or obligation. Give the team at Aptis Wealth a call today to schedule your consultation at 614-364-7300. That's 614-364-7300 or online at aptuswealth.com. That's A-P-T-U-S wealth.com. To learn strategies to manage risk in the new economy, join us again next weekend right here at 98.9 The Answer.
Any comments regarding safe and secure investments and guaranteed income streams refer only to fixed insurance products. They do not refer in any way to securities or investment advisory products. Fixed insurance and annuity product guarantees are subject to the claims paying ability of the issuing company. 